0: Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Before COVID-19, there was another health crisis dominating headlines. One that exposed the challenges of accessing mental health and substance abuse and addiction treatment programs. A crisis that is growing in the midst of this pandemic, and one that too often remains shrouded by shame, stigma, judgment, and pain. We begin this week with producer Kimberly Winston. It is nearly impossible to accurately portray
1: the paralyzing fear a parent feels for a drug-addicted child, the constant worry, the sleepless nights, the demoralizing sense of failure, and the gut punch of family betrayal. But Madeline Dean and her son, Harry Conan put all of that on display in their joint memoir, Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son, Dean is a U.S. representative, a Democrat from the Philadelphia area, and Conan is now a drug treatment resource counselor. But for at least 10 years, he was a drug addict, working his way from middle school drinking parties to college opiate binges, trampling on the heart of his large Catholic family along the way. One constant of both Madeline's fight for her son and Harry's return from self-destruction was their faith. Here's Madeline reading a passage of the book that shows the centrality of
2: faith to their story. I have a favorite part of our Catholic Mass. Just before communion, when the praying is almost complete, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Only say the word and my soul shall be healed. I love that image, how it sums up my faith humility and infinite possibility all at once years ago after the vatican ii council the phrase was simplified to lord i am not worthy to receive you and i thought it a dumb modernization i was pleased when the old image of jesus coming under our roof returned to this day it makes me cry when i hear and speak it aloud are you crying right now Oh, well, I can't help myself. Darn it, I thought we'd get farther into this interview.
1: (laughs) You had to start with that, didn't you? I'm sorry, but it jumped out at me because of the double meaning. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the things you're saying here about under our roof is the fact that opiate addiction came under your roof despite all the advantages that you and your family have. So tell me why you chose this title for this book.
2: Certainly, it it does come from that passage you just asked me to read. It certainly comes from that. And the notion that this was happening under our roof, and I couldn't get my arms around it. I couldn't figure out what was going on, what was going wrong. Uh, And to, I think, great measure, if it can happen under my roof, it can happen under anybody's roof, and it surely does. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Harry, he could tell it from your perspective.
3: From my side, it was more of the second part of what you mentioned, of just how common this is to happen in households all across the country and all across the world. And I think that for me, it sort of gives an image of under our roof is somewhat contained, you know, where people try to contain this and almost hide it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And so many families experience it and feel it and struggle, but it's just so common. So I think that it's something that so many families go through, and that was just a good way to to really wrap it up in a, a clear and concise way.
2: Why I like that phrase so much is it stands in stark contrast to itself. So the first part of the phrase, Lord, I am not worthy, uh, shows our humility. And, you know, if addiction touches your, your life, if mental illness, sickness touches your life, you are humbled by it. But then the other one, which I say it's a statement of our faith, only say the word and my soul shall be healed, tells me that anything is possible in this world. That's my statement of faith. And so I just love that simple expression that shows conflict and contrast, humility and ultimate possibilities. And it just seemed to meet the challenge we were under. Harry,
1: you write very movingly in the book about the first time that you tried drugs. There was a void in your life, some kind of emptiness, and it seemed that drugs filled that emptiness.
3: The first time that I felt intoxicated, felt that euphoria sort of come in, was this feeling of being whole. And you mentioned the void, and I think, you know, as a young child growing up, that's not something that I could place or understand or or even know that was there it wasn't until you know the alcohol and drugs came in and just filled that void for me so perfectly that they felt like like medicine like what i needed just to be comfortable in my own skin i was so uncomfortable in my own skin that as soon as i had that feeling i was able to not worry about anything not worry about fitting in not worry about doing well in school or meeting people's expectations. I could just be in the moment. And that was a feeling that I chased and I chased for years afterwards.
1: Could you read a section about your drug use for me?
3: When you're using, each day feels like a hurricane. Every call Every conversation could be the one where you're confronted with the truth, not the truth as you see it, but the truth as it is seen from the outside. The fear of getting caught consumes you. You can't stop chasing, you can't stop lying, and you can't stop using. To stop is to risk being exposed, so you continue to spin. As desperation took over, it became easier to cross new items off my list of dampers. For one, I started stealing. In the past, there were times when I took cash and drugs from dealers or friends who I thought wouldn't notice. They were the kind of guys who would steal your wallet and help you look for it. I knew because I was one of them. It was easy to justify that these people deserved to be robbed, but that line soon became blurred. I reasoned that stealing for my daughter's formula and diapers was okay, even noble ignoring that my entire paycheck had gone toward drugs. With this new thought, everyone became fair game. And now the targets in my crosshairs were the people who loved me the most.
1: This is a very painful chapter in your family's life. So tell me why you wanted to share this story with the world.
3: We wanted to share it more than anything in hopes that we might be able to help someone to shine a light on an issue that I think is often swept under the rug and not talked about openly, even within a family system. So for us, just having an opportunity to begin to get that process out there or get the story out there was something that is a way to start to continue the process of ending the stigma. And I think that just through the process of writing the book, we've come so much closer. And I hope that for anybody who reads it, it can give that same platform or that same opportunity to talk about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And Madeline? Harry and I both immediately thought, what a better way to deal with what we've dealt with, put our money where our mouth is when you talk about stigma. If we could humble ourselves and say, this is what we went through. And if we could expose you know, my own stupidity or stumbles or searching then maybe we can be a part of ending the stigma.
1: As I was reading the book, I felt like there was a lot of language used around both the time in your addiction and the time in your recovery. And I'm speaking specifically to Harry here that sounded like the language of spiritual practice. Like there are things you talk about the value of being honest, the value of compassion, the value of taking the time to do little things and Madeline, I see it in your sections when you talk about um, the power of radical hospitality in your home. So, how important was the spiritual component in both of your coming both of you coming back from Harry's addiction?
3: For me, the spiritual component is critical. When I was at the end of my active addiction. You know, a a phrase I heard and just perfectly summed up how I felt was I was spiritually bankrupt. I had no faith. I had no hope. And a big part of that was because I couldn't trust myself. I knew I shouldn't be using drugs, but I was incapable. So for me in recovery, in terms of filling that void, a big part of that has been filling it with and learning spiritual principles. And for me, that has been so incredibly valuable to give me almost the same feeling of peace and calm, and the ability to live within the moment. That the drug scape. I was raised Catholic, and my great uncle Walter lived with us when I was a kid, and he was an oblate priest. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would often do masses in the house, and he was someone that just by virtue of doing the Mass in the house, it took out some of the extravagance of it and made it more personal. Mm. Um, And that was something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But I struggled in going to church and buying in and sort of not seeing it as this punitive type God. Um, But when I, I came into recovery, there were priests. The first guy that actually convinced me to pray was a rabbi you know, all of these different spiritual people in my life were showing me that whatever I believed was okay. And that was sort of the first time that that I had heard that, you know, because I thought there was just the one way that I knew from growing up. And because I was closed off to that, that's why I said in the book, I thought I was an atheist because I didn't believe in that. But I came to find that I believed in something And for me, that was enough to open the door, just believing that there's something bigger than me out there.
1: I want to ask your mother a question. When you were going through this with Harry, was there ever a time when you
2: felt that God was not there? I guess maybe that's not the way I hold my faith, at least through that crisis. Uh, That wasn't a framework that I see my own faith. I'm somebody like Harry, a generation ahead, uh, who was raised uh, Catholic, had the benefit of this fantastic uh, mother and father who believed in our Catholic faith, not always happy with our Catholic Church and some of the administration of it, uh, but then you can see through the book how uh, Walter, Father Walter, Wally as we call them, um, just became such a pillar in my life and the kid's life. I never call on my faith. I hope I don't, at least to say, you know, why have you abandoned me kind of a thing. I knew this was a struggle that we were in. I prayed and prayed and prayed, prayed to my parents, prayed to God, uh, prayed to Walter. And I I just believe that, as I said in the book a couple times, that nothing is impossible with the Lord. And So I have that faith. I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm not perfect at it. My faith has been challenged um, in recent years. But in terms of the struggle we were in, I knew I could rely upon prayer and hope. I consider my faith a real gift in my life. I think what this experience did for me was just really redouble my faith. And I don't mean by that that I go to Mass every Sunday, because I don't. But it absolutely confirmed in me that there is a love of God. There is something much greater than ourselves. Uh, this is not a solitary journey we are on. And I have a faith uh, that through the power of love and and kindness, uh, you know, good things can happen. But in the end, you know, standing by and watching Harry walk into his recovery and, and really do well in it and find his best self in it and continue to be growing. To me, that said, everything that you need to know about sort of spirituality, there's a spirituality about uh, going into and struggling with addiction and a spirituality about how you deal
1: with it. There is a stereotype in much of organized religion, and I'm sure beyond that addiction is somehow a moral and personal failing. It's a spiritual failing. There are a lot of faiths that see addiction to drugs as sin. How do you see that other people of faith might help addicts through
2: this kind of thing? That notion that of addiction as a moral failing, and and those who might think that. I hope that is fewer and fewer people all the time, whether it's a person of faith or not, because that stems from not knowing. It stems from an ignorance that many people could suffer, simply because they don't understand that addiction is a disease of the brain. It's actually a disease, just as you wouldn't criticize me if I had cancer, I hope no one would criticize me if I am addicted or am an addict. It also has always striked me as the antithesis of my faith, because I think my faith teaches me not to judge someone else. It implores me not to judge someone else. And part of our job, I think, is to to shine a light on what addiction really is. It is not about our moral fiber or being, uh, about a a belief in faith or a failure of faith. It's absolutely a disease and we have to learn more about it. And Harry?
3: I think that is a huge component of the stigma. For me, one of the most eye-opening experiences and, and something that was said to me that completely opened me up. When I was in treatment, I went to Karen Treatment Centers And there was a priest there. He had been there forever. And Father Bill approached me, and he just said to me, Harry, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to be well. And to me, that was something that just lifted A weight off of my shoulders because I had felt like I was a bad person. I was raised in the church. I was raised by wonderful parents. I knew what was right and what was wrong. And I think there's this impression with people who, you know, struggle with addiction, that they don't care. I knew all of the things that I was doing were wrong. I knew that and it was painful every time I did it. But I was in a position and a time in my life where I couldn't see another option. You know, with opiate addiction, the pain of withdrawal is severe. The physical pain and the mental torment that comes along with that can convince you to do some really horrible things. And I think that having leaders of faith, you know, having these views is something that's really dangerous because it keeps people from asking for help and it keeps people from reaching out. And I can tell you from my experience that I no longer do the things that I did because I was given the opportunity to receive help and to find a new life.
2: If we could step back and peel off that very thing you just talked about, which is the the false judgment of addiction as a moral failure, if we could peel that off as a society and as legislators, and then look at the person underneath that and see their humanity, look into their eyes and see their humanity, then we might craft policies that deal with the person, that deal with the person who is. Not a failure of a person, but somebody who is sick, who needs help to get well. We have to seek and deal with people in a compassionate way to see their humanity in order to solve problems, not lock them up, not see them as the other or the lesser or the failed. They're all a part of us. Uh, and, And the sooner we understand that, the sooner we're going to have safer communities and healthier communities. Which
1: brings me to page 192, where you, Madeline, talk about some of the legislation you'd like to see. And if I could get you to read this.
2: The numbers are staggering. Each year, gun violence steals 40,000 lives and wounds another 100,000 people, with countless others terrorized and traumatized. Drug overdose claims nearly 70,000 people annually, And that's even before considering many other forms of addiction. Remember the world's response when two Boeing aircraft crashed within months of each other, one killing 346 souls? The world leaped into action. Under immense public pressure, government agencies forced the company to ground that plane. Overdose and gun violence should be no different. In each case, a jetliner of souls is crashing down on our country every day. How can we surrender to this? How can we accept it as our new normal? What we need is a similar response, an urgent grounding of the things in our society that fuel these crises.
1: So we just had a change in the administration with the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, Now, like you, he is also a practicing Catholic. And like both of you, he's been through some pretty serious personal tragedy in his life. So how hopeful are you both that at this time of turning a new page with a new person in the White House who is a man of faith and a man of compassion, that you can get this kind of legislation through?
2: The night before he was sworn in, you remember he did something that I thought tells you all you need to know about Joe Biden he chose the night before he was sworn in to not make it about himself, but to make it about others who are in pain, who have suffered. And so he did there in front of the Lincoln Memorial, that national night of mourning for the more than 400,000 dead of COVID. Among them, uh, my mother-in-law, Harry's grandmother, Joan Kanan. In that moment, he showed his selflessness. And I thought that laid the groundwork for I hope, the next four years, that in, in remembering and in grieving and in mourning that which is painful and hurtful, we actually will heal. So I have great hope, and I don't mean this in a political way, but I have great hope that what we do and the lens through which we look will have uh, an important filter of compassion uh, and a recognition of humanity in our legislative work and in the rest of our lives.
1: Harry, do you have anything you want to add to that?
3: I'm optimistic that maybe in this new administration there might be less distraction from the real issues so that we can focus on these things and come together. I think there's consensus now that the so-called war on drugs did not work, um, will not work, and we have to come together and find creative solutions and have people begin to talk about this in a more open way.
1: Harry, would you go to page 187 and read for me that first paragraph?
3: Back in rehab, the counselors had said that if I stayed committed to recovery, holding on to it as my top priority and taking suggestions from my sponsor and new friend, the desire to use would eventually lift. Don't leave before the miracle happens, they would say. When I first heard this, I considered it complete and utter bullshit. The idea that through some magic, or maybe a so-called higher power, the obsession that had plagued me since my first drink would somehow disappear.
1: Tell me, each of you, tell me what was the miracle?
3: When I agreed to go into treatment, I knew I had a drug problem. I didn't have a lot of hope, but I thought maybe just maybe I could stop using drugs, but I could not envision my life without the desire. Every single day when I woke up, the first thing I thought about was when and how am I gonna get high? And to one day wake up and to just not even have that desire, not have that craving, and to not even think about it, that gave me the ability to create and build a new life that already And like I said, I'm an optimist, so I believe there's a lot more that can happen. But already, just a little more than eight years later, has blown away any expectations that I had for my life.
2: The moment that was a miracle was when Harry said yes to help. I thought I'd have a whole lot of fight, a whole lot of pushback. No, mom, you've got it all wrong and when i said to him harry i know it's drugs i don't know what else to ask but will you get will you go for help and he said yes literally that single word to me was a miracle there were series, a series of chain link of miracles that was taking place that he stayed with recovery that he went on to the next level of recovery that he went on and got a sponsor and went to meetings and started to be healthy and thrive for him to been doing so well in his work and met a wonderful person in Juliet uh, and and the beautiful life they have, raising Aubrey and and now Sawyer, another one on the way. This is a series of miracles. But I will say the one that really uh, shone bright was when he said yes to help. After Harry left the
1: drug treatment center, Pope Francis came to Philadelphia. And, Madeline, you were dead set on being in the same room with him. You got an invite to be present when Pope Francis visited some local inmates. And as he sometimes does as a gesture of love and humility, he washed their feet. Madeline, if you could go to page 207 and if you could read that section for us.
2: This is quoting the Pope. Any society, any family which cannot share or take seriously the pain of its children and views that pain as something normal or to be expected, he said, is a society condemned to remain a hostage to itself. Pray to the very things which cause that pain. Then he taught from the gospel story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. In those days, washing the feet of one's visitors was an important custom. Washing someone's feet, the Pope said, was a sign of welcome. And to Jesus, it was a sign of an even more important truth, that none of us is above another. The Pope preached that life means getting our feet dirty. Sometimes we take the wrong path, like the inmates gathered in that room. But Jesus wants to wash each of us clean, to heal our wounds no matter what, no matter where our lives have taken us. Quote, Jesus comes to save us from the lie of thinking that no one can change. He offered those words to the prisoners, yet they were meant for us all.
1: How do you see those words working in your life today?
3: Like I said, I'm not a very uh, religious person, but I think the message here is clear. As a society, going back to just the idea of compassion and empathy, we need to be more willing and open to looking out for other people and sometimes extending a hand even if they're not ready to receive it. Because for me, none of this process was my own doing. You know, I had to do work in order to, you know, maintain my recovery, and I still do. But I wasn't capable of this on my own. And I think that that is just such a valuable message.
1: What would you say to families like yourselves that are going through something like this, where a family member has addiction? What is for each of you the most important thing that you think they
2: should know? It is a single word of, uh, of hope, that there is hope. And hope comes from oftentimes being vulnerable. Um, I, I was vulnerable to learning my mistakes and my failures in trying to figure out what was going on. When you make yourself vulnerable, and Harry was vulnerable to accepting help, When things had gotten so desperately bad, Um, when you make yourself vulnerable and you open up and you're honest, take advantage of somebody who really is there to want to help you. Don't think that you are not worthy of that help. Don't think that I'm just an awful person and uh, the world would be fine without me. There's there's absolutely hope. And what's even better? Uh, I just see Harry as a beaming example of this. Addiction tried to steal all of Harry's gifts. And through recovery, his gifts are back and are growing. And so I just hope anybody who is struggling with a loved one with addiction or with addiction themselves knows that they are worth it. They are worthy. There is hope. uh, and, And reach out to anybody for help.
3: So I would echo a lot of that. I was incredibly hopeless and I couldn't see that. And I think that just being able to try to offer hope um, and see that there is a possibility to break this cycle, there is an opportunity to get out. I mean, that's the biggest thing is it's not over and there is always hope. And I think the second thing that I would just say is, you know, that I've found out sort of through being in recovery is just how many resources that are actually out there, you know, from treatment centers to therapists to psychologists and psychiatrists, support groups. There's many, many pathways towards recovery, just like there's many pathways to spirituality through religion or otherwise. There's a lot out there. If you, If you or someone you know is struggling with this, try to find somebody that you trust, anybody that you trust, and try to open up a little bit. And It takes that vulnerability, and it's a very scary thing to do, but there's a lot out there.
2: And you're not alone.
0: Kimberly Winston spoke with Pennsylvania Congresswoman Madeline Dean and her son, Harry Kanaan, earlier this year. They spoke about the stigma of addiction and the challenges of getting into recovery. On Thursday, February 4th, Dean is introducing two bills in Congress, the Fairness in Orphan Drug Exclusivity and the End Stigma Act. Coming up after the break, we take a closer look. Stay with us. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We've been talking with Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania and her son, Harry Kanaan. The two co-authored a forthcoming memoir, Under Our Roof. It details Harry's battle with opioid addiction and their family's road to recovery. A couple of weeks after the initial interview, Representative Dean began her second term and began unveiling new legislation. We had a few more questions, this time focusing on the actions she is taking under a different roof, the United States Congress. A lot of families struggle, but very few families have a member in Congress where the laws get made. Ending stigma is very important how you get through that, this spiritual journey that you take, which you so beautifully talked about. But then there's a third piece, how the personal experiences that you decided to share with the public, how does that inform your policymaking?
4: So at the time, Harry and I were, you know, sort of head to head, um, trying to figure out what was going on. I was a state representative. And it was just dawning on me through the evidence that was coming into Pennsylvania of the critical problem we were having, number one, on the drugs coming into communities, uh, traversing our state in very uh, devastating and deadly ways. Number two, the impact that our criminal justice system was having, to my experience, to the wrong, the war on drugs, the mandatory minimums. And so even before I fully knew where Harry was or what we were dealing with, I was a member of the Judiciary Committee for the State House saying, we've got to rethink this. This doesn't make any sense. We have to stop these mandatory minimums that don't do anything but over-incarcerate people of color and further demonize and stigmatize a lot of people who are struggling either with mental health problems or with substance abuse disorder and addiction. On the flip side, in terms of our economic structure and our educational structure, what are we doing about this? What are we doing about stigma? So even before I knew what Harry was slipping into the depths of, I recognized that our policies in terms of health care for all, in terms of parity for mental health, in terms of stigma around mental health disorders, depression, addiction, the whole gamut, I knew we were still in I don't want to say the dark ages, but we had a long way to
0: go. Well, now here you are, a member of Congress, and right now you sit in the majority. What are you doing to take those perspectives that you've witnessed in Pennsylvania, that you see unfolding today, and in this time in which we're talking specifically about systemic racism influencing the war on drugs and disproportionate record of mentally ill individuals coming from black and brown communities incarcerated. How are you seeking to address this? I understand you also sit on the Judiciary Committee in the United States House. So how do you see yourself playing a role now in a position with more power?
4: Our experience allowed me to get closer to these problems. And I'm saying that word closer on purpose. I'm thinking of Brian Stevenson, who says, if you want to do something about a problem, you need to get proximate to it. Well, our family got really proximate to the disease of addiction and to the extraordinary horrors of it, the sadness of it, the risks of it. And of course, through our experience and the families that we know, uh, others have suffered so much more and have lost so much. And so by being proximate, by being close to it, it told me that I got to do something about it. Yes, we're in the majority now in, in the US House. What a difference a majority makes. We had a broader majority last go round, my first session in Congress, the 116th. We have a very slim majority now. I'm a part of a, a caucus that Congressman Trone uh, developed around addiction based on his own family's personal losses and experience. And so I believe the bill, for example, that I was able to pass out of the House last time, we're reintroducing it, I think, literally Thursday of this week, uh, having to do with the fairness and orphan drug pricing in order to get medically-assisted treatments affordably to people who are dealing with addiction. So we're going to pass legislation that we passed last time. We'll pass it again. This time, I hope, with partners in the Senate with the very slim Democratic majority in the Senate, and then, of course, with the leadership of President Biden and Kamala Harris. I don't know too many people who don't know somebody who is dealing with the disease of addiction. So if it's not immediately in your family, you certainly know somebody in your school, in your neighborhood, in your church, in, in some capacity, some association that you have. A bill that we've come up with, the End Stigma Act, is grants to colleges. If you had a chance to read some of the book, you saw the struggle that I had with Harry slipping deep into addiction while in college. And nobody's bothering to raise their hand to say, your son has a serious problem here. Mm.
0: I appreciate you outlining those legislation to end stigma, legislation to address treatment. I understand you also recently in the last week introduced the Community Health Center Mental Health Screening Act, which comes with price tag of $50 million to assist states in adopting mental health screening. These feel like very discrete objectives. Is that the strategy at this point, that to address this very big problem, we need to have discrete steps that are being made because there is not enough critical public demand for a systemic response to the crisis this country is facing?
4: If this were to pass, please, Lord. And this is introduced with somebody I really admire, Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware, a colleague and friend to our new president. And so I don't think $50 a year is a small amount of money. I don't know what it's going to take, frankly. And one of the reasons I wear this starfish pin is to say, instead of shouting at the darkness, this problem is so monumental. I don't know how we're ever going to get the dollars to do what we need to do. I'm trying to find concrete ways, some small, like grants around stigma for colleges. That's a smaller initiative. Whereas the community health centers, a $50 million annual initiative, I think is is a larger one. So we're just trying to come up with strategies that will shine a light on this, that will shed resources on it, all with the idea that what Harry and I did in, in the book is to say, if we can talk about this and we can admit our stumbles, maybe we can help others shed the stigma. And you and I haven't even talked about the criminal justice system.
0: Your acknowledgement and recognition of the war on drugs and its impact in essentially placing police officers in the role that, frankly, social workers and health care providers should be in. Are there one or two policies that you feel need to be prioritized to address the crisis facing the mentally ill who are incarcerated?
4: What I want to do is shine a light on that and say the idea that we criminalize possession of small amounts of drugs, whatever it is, we know the impact on communities of color. We know the economic impact, uh, the cash bail system, all of these layers of injustices. But I, I have to say, I have some hope because I'm a member of the Judiciary Committee with a Democratic majority who recognizes the war on drugs didn't work, that mandatory minimums don't work. And while we will have members on the other side of the aisle rail against us, And just say, you're soft on crime. You want to put all the criminals, violent criminals out on the street. Well, no, I don't. I want to treat addiction and mental illness as addiction and mental illness and separate out crime. You know, drug courts are a huge advance. There's a whole lot we can do to be more humane in our criminal justice system, to recognize the failings in our mental health system, in our healthcare system. We've got a long way to go.
0: In a lot of states, you see the engagement or partnership with faith-based recovery centers and with behavioral health facilities. Some have come under significant scrutiny because of the treatment um, that patients or clients receive if they are not holding the same faith or any faith tradition that is in line with the belief system of that particular facility. And because they're working in partnership with the state, they serve as a proxy for the state. And I'm wondering, Harry, if you've thoughts on that and if there are particular mechanisms, Congresswoman, that you feel ought to be in place to ensure that the most vulnerable that we're talking about are also protected from perhaps other traumas that they might encounter in environments in which they are judged through a lens that may be more critical because of the different ways in which people of different faith traditions may approach mental health recovery, and addiction.
3: I think it's a really important question. I think that looking at what are the different pathways to recovery, the most clear thing that we've seen with addiction and these mental health issues, they don't discriminate based on faith, religion, you know, race, gender, anything. These are issues that impact everybody and everybody in this country has a right to their own beliefs and their own spiritual principles or systems that they adhere to. So I think, you know, really the focus needs to be looking at clinically and medically speaking. The treatment needs to be in line with that. And we need to be looking at outcomes for a long time, especially before this was really viewed in the medical sense of this is a disease it really kind of allowed people to treat it however they saw fit, without needing to provide information or data and research on outcomes. And we really need to pivot back and look at it the way that we look at other medical treatments, and focus on the outcome. And there should be no discrimination in any area, especially in an area of faith or religion or someone's gender identity, whatever that may be, because it's only going to turn people away, and it's not going to be an opportunity for people to heal
4: if you had a broken arm mm-hmm. i wouldn't say that's your fault i'd take it at your arm fixed so if you have a disease and it affects your brain people need to understand it in similar very basic ways it maddening to me because i'm a person of some faith that my faith tells me i'm not supposed to judge others and yet so often we see these harsh judgments come down on people who are addicts on people who struggle with depression, bipolar disorder, or whatever the disease is. And I just think that's totally in contradiction with my faith. It's hard to live by, but we're not supposed to judge. It's hard to do. But it is the antithesis of what my faith tells me.
0: And as a lawmaker and as someone who looks at the First Amendment constitutional rights, I'm curious, do you feel like in a place in which there is remote access, limited resources, and the state turns to the one faith-based recovery network system, do there need to be federal protections in place to ensure that clients are not coerced?
4: Sure. You just drew a picture of an area that's a bit of a, an island for care. And so certainly I wouldn't want to shut people out of any care whatsoever based on their religious affiliation. My ambition as a lawmaker, a legislator, appropriator uh, is, of course, to make sure we're following the science, following the data, the research, what's known to be true. So I take that same seriousness to resources for mental health, for public health, but I, I would never slam the door. Uh, on resources if that's the only resources available to a community. But it's a very careful thing you have to do. You have to scrutinize and make sure that this is based in science and medicine and that you're not using government dollars to support a church.
0: What I am curious about is how much attention and energy is needed from the public to be able to create the public will that lawmakers need to make this a priority.
4: I don't wait for the public pressure, if that makes any sense to you. You know, Lincoln said public sentiment is everything. With it, you can do almost anything. Without it, you can do almost nothing. But I already believe this in my own fiber. So I'm not waiting for the public pressure. But I will tell you, with it, we will be able to do anything. So it's already in my core. It's already in my soul. Um, I want to talk about Jamie for a minute.
0: You're talking about Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin.
4: When I heard of his suffering and the death of his son, New Year's Eve, Mm. um, from depression, died of suicide, he's going to make such a difference. Mm -hmm. Do you see what he did with his grief? He didn't hide it. You saw he beautifully wrote about his son, quoted his son's final note saying, please forgive me. My disease one today. I mean, that's, that's powerful honesty. That's going to make a difference. So sure, it would help to get public opinion to come behind us. But you've got a bunch of legislators who already think this is important to fight about.
0: Congresswoman Madeline Dean is a Democrat representing Pennsylvania's Montgomery County. She's also one of the managers of President Donald J. Trump's second impeachment. Harry Canan is a resource director for Karen Treatment Centers in New Jersey, where he once received treatment for opioid addiction. Their forthcoming memoir, "Under Our Roof, will be released on February 16, 2021 by Penguin Random House. That's all for this week's show. A uh, Shout out to our producers Kimberly Winston and Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and MC Yogi for our theme music. I also want to welcome our new audience engagement fellow, Lila Weitzner. She's going to be supporting our new programs to engage listeners and our station partners, including our new book club. On February 25th, the book club will be meeting, and we are reading See No Stranger by Valerie Carr. If you want to join, send an email to Lila, L I L A, at interfaithradio.org. Before we go, I just want to acknowledge we are living in difficult times and many of us are struggling. If you or someone you know is in emotional distress, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is a 24 7 service. It's toll free and it's available at 1 800 2738255 Wherever you are, I hope you are well. I hope you stay safe and connected. See you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbrane Khan.